0: That's the beginning of the nosedive. It's only getting worse from here. Really what happened last week is the turning point in this, in this book and then really for the entirety of the Old Testament. It's pretty much downhill from now on throughout the rest of the Old Testament. And really today's passage can feel like we've just jumped right back into the book of Judges. We're stuck in this cycle of sin, this spiral into worse and worse uh, consequences. In that there hasn't been much progress. So while some things have changed, Israel now has a king instead of judges, life really hasn't gotten any better. And this is the consistent testimony throughout Scripture sin has consequences, and those consequences are far greater than any of us often imagine. Sin is a cosmic rebellion against God, who is the greatest, most glorious, most holy, most giving, and most pure being in the entire universe. In other words, it's kind of a big deal. You and I think it's low to do things like kick dogs or hurt little children, which is pretty low, but how bad is it to sin against he who is most perfect and most holy and most giving and most innocent? As far and as distant as the Old Testament can often feel to us, there are certain realities that have not changed from their time period to ours. And some of those realities are on full display in this passage this morning. The fallenness of man, we are broken and tainted by sin, the deceptive nature of sin, how it can lie to us and lead us down a path we really don't want to go, and its destructive nature. That where sin goes, it brings death to you, to your relationships, to your families, and even to societies. And if we were left with only the Old Testament, we would see that there really is no way to escape. You can't educate your way out of sin, you can't will yourself out of sin, you can't buy your way out of it, and you can't excuse yourself out of it. There's nothing within us that can deal with the power of sin. And so you and I are no different than the characters we're going to read about this morning. So look at your own life, look at the world around you, and you will see this darkness. It's present in your heart, so don't get boastful or prideful, and it's present in our world. If I were to sit here and think about some of the really, really stupid sins I've done in my life, and there are many, many of them, it would absolutely overwhelm me. I've seen this foolishness of sin in my own life. I've also sat in rooms as a pastor and listened to the destruction that sin causes in families and lives and individuals. It takes root in the heart and it destroys in a very predictable pattern. And that's kind of what we're going to see this morning. The wages of sin is death. Sin always brings with it destruction, chaos, insanity, ridiculous self-justifications. And you and I are left defenseless. So in today's story, we read about the rape of Tamar by her half-brother, Amnon, and then her full brother, Absalom's response, which is to plot to kill Amnon, and he does. And this should sound really, really familiar to you. It's really not that different from last week. We have sexual sin and murder, just like with David. Now his sons are doing the exact same thing. And there's a warning to us parents. The apple really doesn't often fall too far from the tree. As a father of four, I know that my strengths will bless my kids and my sins may haunt them. So we should take note of that. And Without grace, you and I would be forced to stare into that abyss and to live there permanently. So today's events show us the spiral of sin, its natural consequences, Which God uses to judge our sin in this life and to point forward to a greater judgment that is to come. Through the prophet Nathan, God said to David last week, he said these words, Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. That was the consequence for David. Very next chapter, We get to see those consequences with Amnon, Tamar, and Absalom. So from this passage, we are going to see six truths about sin and the sin spiral. And the first one is this. Sin consumes. Sin consumes our thinking, it consumes our hearts, and it eventually consumes our lives. We'll read verses 1 through 6 here. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar. For she was a virgin. And it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemiah, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, O son of the king, Why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? And Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, Let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. So again, the story should sound uh, rather familiar to you. Amnon, like his father David, sees a beautiful woman. This beautiful woman, just like Bathsheba, is off limits. Different reasons why she's off limits, but she is Off limits. And the desire for Tamar consumes Amnon. It consumes him so much that his friend notices that he seems ill every morning. The only thing this guy can think about in all of his life is getting his half sister. Now, it's no secret that men can be easily tempted by beautiful women. Many a man has fallen to that temptation. And we know that a delayed desire, especially a strong one like love or sex, often only continues to grow in someone's mind and heart until they get what they want. And the more we think on it, the more it turns over in our minds, the more we dwell on it, the more it consumes our very being. We have to have that thing that we just can't stop thinking about. So as our thought life is consumed, eventually our whole life is consumed. The truth is, whatever dominates our thinking will dominate our desires, and whatever dominates our desires, we will eventually pursue. And this is exactly what happens with Amnon. We have seen this, I think all of us can admit, we've seen this in other people's lives. If we're honest with ourselves, we've seen it happen to ourselves as well. Whatever it may be, sometimes it's not even a bad desire We can't stop thinking about it. And it grows in importance and gravity in our hearts and in our minds until we have to get that thing. And so while we would rightly want to condemn Amnon for everything he does, we should have at least a little bit of sympathy. Not to excuse him, but to realize if not by God's grace, there also I go. Sin, the more you desire it, The more it gets its hooks in you, the more it will rule over you. The second thing we see about sin is that it blinds. It blinds us. So Amnon hatches this or his friend, Jonadab, hatches this plan. He executes it. Let's pick up the story in verse 7. Then David sent home to Tamar, saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother's at Amnon's house, where he was lying down. And she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the chamber that I may eat it from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near to him, he took hold of her and said to her, "'Come, lie with me, my sister.' She answered him, "'No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame?' And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her. And being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. As sin consumes the mind, it also blinds us from what's really going on around us. It blinds us from reality. And that's exactly what we see here. In the process of his pursuit, he fakes his own illness, he asks for help, and he has lots of opportunities here to stop. He has lots of opportunities to come to his senses. But he will not because he cannot satiate his own desires. The the striking nature between him and Tamar is, is amazing to me. He says he loves her. We know he really doesn't. He's sick, so his sister comes out of concern for her brother to care for him at his bedside, and it's all just a ruse for him to take advantage of her. There are several ways we see the blindness of Amnon here. First, he is blind to what is right and to what is wrong. He tells her what his desire is, and she turns and pleads with him. She says, don't violate me. Don't do this outrageous thing thing. Those terms carry the strong moral sense with it. What you're doing is wrong. As the sin grows in his heart and his mind, he he knows that deep down but he's not seeing it. And she reminds him, what you are doing here is wrong. But he's blind to it. As a pastor and as a human being, I can tell you we all have an innate ability to justify our sins. To excuse them to come up with some harebrained reason why it's okay for me to do what God says not to do. Newsflash, it's not. Never was and never will be. Second, sin blinds us to the harm it does to others. Sin will hurt you, it will hurt your family, and it will hurt other people. Tamar pleads with her brother here to not rape her because she says, how? And where can I carry my shame? If you do this to me, it will ruin the rest of my life. There will be no place in which I can hide. And Here's a guy who supposedly says he loves her. She will be marked for life by this sin. She will end up living in her brother Absalom's house. And she is basically, in her culture, become unmarriedable. No one will marry her because of what happens. All her hopes and dreams come to absolutely nothing because of his sinful desires. Third, sin blinds him and us to the consequences for ourselves. Again, it's Tamar who speaks reason into this situation. She says, and as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. From this point on, Amnon's life goes down the tubes. He's eventually going to lose his life for it. And if you think about it, as he warns here, you're going to be one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Everyone's going to know what you did and you're going to have to live with that. Little did he know that this incident would be written down in Scripture and for thousands of years people would still be talking about it. That's how great the fallout is for Amnon. He likely convinced himself that he'd get away with it, that no one would know, but sin is always trying to be found out. It is always trying to come to light at the worst possible time. Fourth, he is blind to the way of escape. Tamar again gives him a way out, gives him a way to save face. She says, Now therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. So as this is going on, he's made his desires known, And she's offering him this way, well, you could maybe still get what you want if you go ask the king. Now he knows, and she probably knows this as well, that he was not going to say yes. It's against the Old Testament law for this to happen. And really, she's probably not interested in marrying him. But she gave him an out. She gave him a way to justify not doing what he was already planning on doing. But he would not listen. And so the episode ends with him using his physical strength to overpower his half-sister. Sadly, in human history and today, men using their physical strength to take advantage of women is all too common. It is wrong, it is sinful, and God hates it. Always has and always will. Tamar bears no blame. It's all on him. The third truth we see about sin, is it doesn't satisfy. It grows in your mind. It tells you if you get these things, life's going to be different or you're finally going to be satisfied. You're finally going to have that thing that will give you meaning. And I think this is really really where this story is striking. Look at verse 15 through 19. After this incident, Then Amnon hated her with very great hatred so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Get up, go. But she said to him, No, my brother, for this is wrong in sending me away and greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, Put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. And she laid her hand on her head, went away crying aloud as she went. So immediately... After he gets what he wants, after he's messed it up in his head, so much so that he looks physically ill to his friends, that I have to have this. Immediately after he gets what he wants, he now hates the very thing that he got. That is the epitome of the nature of sin. It says that the love by which he loved her, or the desire by which he desired her, was now dwarfed by the hatred he had for her. And she'd done nothing wrong. He commands her to be removed from his sight and to be put out of his house. And she objects that this sin is worse than what he just did. Now, in our culture, probably not worse. But in their culture, it was. Because now that he had done that and she can't be married, he has an obligation to provide for her for the rest of her life. He has the obligation to restore her honor. And he refuses. So why does Amnon act this way? Because in some ways, the curse of sin had been removed. That blindness has been partially removed. And he starts to see clearly how badly he messed up. How badly he has sinned against his sister, against his nation, as a part of the royal family, and against God. And now every time he sees her, he sees his own failure. He sees his own sin and he can't stand it. So he tells her to get out, to be removed, and have the door locked. And she walks away with ash on her head, ripping her virgin clothes, because she's no longer a virgin, in tears and weeping and mourning for what has happened to her. That is the ugliness of sin. Her walking away in mourning destitute and violated that is sin so how many times must you and I sin feel the same things that Amnon feels here the same disgust and ask ourselves the same question how did I do that again swear it'll be different before we realize that sin lies to us. It will never give you that thing it says it's going to give you. Because we are just as vulnerable, once that guilt starts to wear off, to go right back to the same dog vomit again. If you could ask Amnon at that moment where he kicks his sister out, was your sin worth it and would you take it back? My guess is he would say it wasn't worth it. At least if he was being honest. And that is only the beginning of the fallout for him. The fourth truth about sin is that it destroys. It has no power to save, no power to heal, no power to give anything but fleeting pleasure and then death. Verses 20-29 through tell the sad tale of the desolate life that Tamar will now live in Absalom's house how David the king hears about what has happened, and David continues in his spiral of sin and does nothing about it. As father, he should have done something about it. As king, he should have done something about it. But he too has his own sin problems and probably didn't feel justified in judging his son for the very same sins that he was doing and guilty of. Amnon's sin brought devastation to Tamar. It brought devastation to David. To Absalom, to the royal family, the entire nation, and eventually it brings destruction and death to him. Scripture says it again and again. Sin brings death. Lots of forms of death. There's spiritual death, being cut off from God. There's relational death as our families and our relationships die. There's death at this level of society. There's eternal death in hell. There's physical death when your body dies. All of those things are the natural result of sin. And as I read stories like this and I look at myself (laughs) and I look at our church and the church in this country, I uh, I am forced to ask myself this question. Do we really believe these things about sin? I think in our best moments we do. Do we really believe believe that sin does all of these things because if we did we wouldn't trifle around with it like we do. If we really believe that sin brings all of this devastation and destruction we wouldn't try to justify why we did it last time. If we really believe these things about sin we wouldn't have people saying well you know it's judgmental to point out other people's sin. It's judgmental to show that the Bible says this thing is wrong. No, it's loving because that's sin is going to kill them. And as a pastor, I can tell you again, I've seen the destruction. Don't toy around with it. And all of that destruction and death we see is but a small foretaste of what happens on that final day of judgment. All of the ugliness you see in Tamar leaving Amnon's house is nothing in comparison to God looking you in the face on judgment day and casting you into eternal fire because of your sin. Everlasting death. Do we really believe that? Because that's what the Bible teaches. The fourth truth about sin is that sin, or sorry, the fifth, is that sin begets sin. That is, sin generally leads to more sin. And really, the rest of this chapter, chapter 14, is just one big story of how one person sins and people respond to being sinned against by sinning back in return. That's what Absalom did by killing his half-brother, That's what Absalom will do for chapters now, later when he flees and then returns to retake the kingdom eventually from David. Uh, It's what he did when Absalom, this is what he did in response to uh, Amnon's sin. And we see this displayed in our lives time and time again. We are trained and hardwired, I think, in a lot of ways, to respond to being wronged by wronging someone else in return. That's what I mean by sin begets sin. We have this almost self righteous way of excusing anything wrong we do to somebody else, but when somebody wrongs us, we feel justified to wrong them. So, how many times does your spouse, your friend, your child, your coworker sin against you and you respond in kind? I've never done that as a husband, not once. Why do we do this? Why do we think that two wrongs make a right? Your husband's his normal, gruff self, says something unkind or unthinking, and you lash out in response, and you feel justified because he hurt your feelings. Well, he was wrong, and you're wrong too. God doesn't like either one. Or your wife doesn't give you what you expected, husband, and you respond by giving her the cold shoulder, and you feel justified in that because she failed you in some way. No, you're not justified in sinning when you were sinned against. Or your child misbehaves and you've been correcting him or her time and time again and you just can't take it anymore, so you fly off the handle and you yell at them and you offer them that non-apology apology. Well, I'm sorry I yelled at you, but I wouldn't have done that if... Well, no, me yelling at you was still wrong. And that's the power of sin, When we are wronged, sin often multiplies. And that is why Christ's teaching on the Sermon on the Mount is so needed. Now, when somebody slaps you on the cheek, you turn and you give them the other cheek. In other words, when they wrong you, when they insult you, the Christian response is to not sin in return, but to show grace. And that's supernatural, because it doesn't come easy. We need to train ourselves to be quick to repent of our sins and to be quick to forgive those who have sinned against us. Because here's another thing. Do we really believe it? The New Testament is explicitly clear. If you can't forgive others when God has forgiven you, then you may not be forgiven at all. Forgiveness is kind of a big deal. And when you think about how hard it is for us often to forgive those closest to us, our spouses, our children, our family members. It shouldn't be that way. We should be quicker to forgive those we love. Forgiven people forgive. So we look at all of this, and you think, well, what hope do any of us have who can save such wretches as Amnon, Absalom, David, and you and me? And that gets us to our final point here. We look at these terrible realities of sin, and we see that Christ came to break the cycle of sin. Stories like this of Amnon should drive us to the cross. We should first, When we read it, we shouldn't first go, Wow, I'm glad I'm not as bad as he is. I'm so much better than him. It should be "Man." Kind of see where he's coming from, and I need help. The story of sin in humanity is clear. We choose sin, and now we lack the ability to do anything about it. The story of the Old Testament is one sad story, again and again, of people failing, of people sinning. And even the great heroes of the faith from Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David, they all fail. And none of them can overcome the core problem. We need someone greater than David, greater than Moses, greater than Abraham. And that is where Christ enters the scene. And Christ breaks this cycle in two main ways. There are two ways he breaks this cycle for you and for me. And the first is that Christ brings total forgiveness by paying the wage due for sin. That is why Christ came to die. He came to stand in your place and to bear the wrath of God upon himself due for all the ugliness of your sin if you are in him by faith. God himself cannot die. This is why God the Son added a human nature to himself so that he could live among us, could live perfectly, and die as an innocent and willing victim. So let me say this clearly this morning. If you are in Christ, then your sin is totally gone, utterly removed. And if you're feeling that conviction weigh down on you this morning, you're looking at Amnon and you're looking at yourself and you're going, Man, I am a wreck. You are. But in Christ, you are totally forgiven, it's gone. No one can bring that up to you again in a sense to separate you from God or to throw you into eternal fire. Christ objectively and finally dealt with it on the cross. Wholly removed. You are now declared innocent by the blood of Christ. A second way Christ breaks the cycle of sin is once you are in him, he sends you his spirit. The wonderful truth about the Christian life is that eternal life starts the moment you are born again, the moment you first believe. God, by the power of the Spirit, is now at work in you so that you do not have to live like Amnon. Sin no longer has the power to rule over you. You may give into it, but you are not like the unbelievers out there who have no choice but to sin. You can now look sin right in the eye and say, no, not by your own strength, but by the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in you. Yes, you will still struggle with sin. Yes, you will still fall. Yes, you will still need to repent. But sin no longer owns you. The Bible calls those who are in Christ saints. That means holy ones. I struggle with thinking of myself as that. But it's not on my merits that I'm a holy one. It's on Christ. The cycle is broken. So what does this mean practically? When you think of this, and you think of yourself, one of the things that really helps in growing in the Christian faith is studying yourself. Not to find out what your strengths are, or a personality test or anything silly like that, but where your sin tendencies are. To have that Bible open and to read it and say, where is Levi falling short? Where are my bents? We all have bents. Where Where am I bent to sin? And to realize those things and to start cutting off that cycle of sin early on in the process. When it starts to consume my thinking, when it starts to enter into my mind, the more I churn it over, the harder it is for me to kill it later on. It's to cut it off right then and there. To identify it for what it is. Evil, ugliness, sinful, and a lie. To repent of it right away and to replace that bad thinking with truth. Or as Paul puts it, renewing your mind. And to ask God and others for help. This is the Christian life and it is objectively better than living in the cycle of sin growing degree by degree, slowly but surely, to be more like our Savior. You can't do it on your own, and it only comes because Christ stands in your place on that cross. It's all by grace. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that you humbled yourself to come down to live among wretches like us, To die for some of the most horrible sins ever committed, to take upon yourself my punishment, our punishment, so that we could be declared wholly and totally and finally forgiven. Lord, may our hearts rejoice in that freedom, and may your spirit work overtime in our hearts, in our minds that we might see the lying nature of sin, that we might see its ugliness in our own lives, and that we might turn from it. And by the power of your Spirit, grow day by day in holiness. If you do not act, Lord, we are powerless to do any of this. So we ask and expect your grace. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.